0: Hello, I'm Erica Lacas and this is the Messy Messianic Mama podcast. Today we'll be talking about preparing for Yom Teruah. Stick around for some hope healing and maybe even some laughs. Welcome once again to another Messy Messianic Mama podcast. Today is the 19th of September 2022. I'm so excited to be here with you today. We're going to be talking about preparing for Yom Teruah. This upcoming week's Torah portion is Nitzavim, which means the one standing. You could find it in Deuteronomy chapter 29 to 9 or verse 10, depending on what kind of Bible you're reading from, to chapter 30, verse 20. Actually, a really short Torah portion this particular week. Then you have the half tour portion, which is Isaiah chapter 61 to verse 10, to chapter 63, verse 9, and the Brit Harasha, you'll find in Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. Really, really great Torah portion. I know I say that every week, but I really do mean it. Um, I know I was talking to, my husband and I, reread read the Torah portion every week together in preparation for this podcast. You know, I want to see if he has any insights, because there's wisdom in the counsel of many, and he always has something really great to say, and His whole thing was just, his heart was really just set on how Moses was really just telling them, like, look, if you want to be blessed and you want to fulfill the covenant that Adonai has made with you, these are the things that you need to do and you will be blessed by it. And if you choose not to do these things, you will be cursed by it. And I think it's really important for us to focus on that from time to time, if not on a daily basis. to remember where our true motives are now preparing for yom teruah for those of you who do not know yom teruah is known as the feast of trumpets it's also known as rosh hashanah in uh, jewish circles which is their new year the more accurate description of yom teruah is not the Feast of Trumpets. It's actually the, the the Day of Shouting is the actual, like, better, more literal translation of it. And there's a lot of really great examples there. And I actually, do in my study, I found a really great uh, example of it. And I, I thought about, like, you know what, maybe I'll just read this whole thing. But I was like, nope, you're not going to read it. You're going to let other people do it themselves. I wish I knew how to add links to my podcast. Some Someday I'll get that. Uh, to that point where I'm tech savvy enough to do that. But there's a man called Nehemiah, Nehemiah Gordon. And I don't know if you're familiar with him. He is a Bible scholar. He's actually Jewish. But he actually is very open with uh, working of those uh, in the believers who are in Yeshua. And in fact, he's actually had a friend of mine on his podcast who lives in Israel. And uh, he was, it was a really good podcast that he did with her. But Nehemiah, like the Bible gordon and if you go to his website called nehemiahswall.com you can look on uh there's a really great article he did on how yom teruah became rosh hashanah it has to do with when they were in captivity in babylon it's it's kind of like you know we've, we've talked about christmas and easter and how we've kind of chosen to change up or adopt pagan traditions and call them Christian. Well, the same is true for pretty much all, all religions. But the same is true when it comes to Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah, which is what they call the new year, has all to do with being picked up while they were in captivity in Babylon. And so I really encourage you to read this article, How Yam Teru Became Rosh Hashanah by Nehemia Gordon. I know some of you are more familiar with it uh, being pronounced... Nehemiah, which it can be, but he this is actually his name, and so he is referred to as Nehemia. He, I believe, is from Israel, and um, he just seems like an all-around nice guy. We don't necessarily see eye to eye on everything, but I really did appreciate his insight on this particular situation and/or I can't think of the right term of it, but you know what I'm saying. So, you know, I've said this I think last year too, is that you know we don't really celebrate as Rosh Hashanah. For whatever reason, we tend to be able to say that easier than Yom Teruah. I don't know why, because you would think Yom Teruah would be easier to say, but I know at least for me, like, I definitely slip and say Rosh Hashanah instead. <laughs> and the irony is that's not actually what I'm celebrating at all. I'm not celebrating a new year. There's only one year, biblically speaking, that Adonai tells us to um, observe or at least count, which is the first month, which is around Passover which of course is like typically around March or April, has to do with the Babylonian calendar and other things. Like, for example, one of the things I was planning on talking to you this week before I even read that article from Nehemiah was about Elul, the month preceding Yom Teruah and all the high holy days. And I will get into that, but I actually am going to be, you know how I love my handy-dandy book that I go to a lot, especially when it comes to the feasts. It's called A Complete Guide to Celebrating Our Messiah in the Festivals by Susan Mortimer. I highly recommend recommend this book. It's got so many great insights and just fun things to do with your your family. And I do love it, so I'm going to read just a little bit of it. But I'm actually not reading the most out of this today, so I know, be shocked. But I kind of wanted to get a clearer picture and or a Jewish perspective perspective so you can kind of see, like, where there are slight differences on what is celebrated during this time of year. So it is Rosh Hashanah. For this is the you know Jewish perspective. They celebrate the head of the year. It is a one or two-day celebration of the beginning of the Jewish civil new year. It falls in September or October on the first day of Tishri. Now, Tishri is a month that was used in Babylonian times, it's from the Babylonian calendar. This festival is considered the anniversary of the creation of the universe and of mankind. The Day of Atonement, which is Yom Kippur, is 10 days later, which represents God's redemption of mankind. The days from Rosh Hashanah through Yom Kippur, which I think it's funny they say that because Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah are literally the same days, but it's fine, are called the 10 days of repentance, the days of awe, or the high holy days. So when you hear me you know, talking about the high holy days or the, the days of awe, I'm talking about Yom, the other days of Yom Teruah to Yom Kippur to Sukkot. Those are all uh, holy days. These are 10 days at a time of... Now, I, I include Sukkot there too, which isn't part of the 10 days. But these 10 days are a time of introspection, a time to recognize and confess failure to others, to ourselves, and to Adonai. This self-examination is meant not to cause self-condemnation, but to motivate us to seek forgiveness and to start the new year older, wiser, and determined to have a deeper, more intimate, and loving relationship with Adonai and our fellow man. Now you can see where there might be some deviation here from the Messianic believer because we don't need to wait for a certain time of year for that to happen. And we certainly don't need to wait for a new year. Although as Americans, we absolutely wait to do that, you know, resolutions on New Year's Eve and things of that nature. But That's not what we're talking about here. Yom Teruah was established by Adonai during the time of Moses. So Numbers 29, verses 1 through 6. On the first day of the seventh month, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. It is a day for you to sound the trumpets, or the shofar, as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Prepare a burnt offering of one young bull, one ram, and seven males, male lambs a year old, all without defect. They're offerings made to the Lord by fire, a pleasing aroma. Now, some would say we don't really need to celebrate that because it has to do with sacrifices, but it's like, can you still blow the shofar? The answer is yes. So why in the world wouldn't you do that? So shofars play an important part in the festival. I apologize. I feel like I'm going way too fast here. Let me slow down a little bit. Shofars play an important part in this festival with their sound and their symbolism. They're sounded 100 times on each of the 10 days of awe, and they symbolize some of God's actions and ways. The ram's horn, or shofar that sounded at Mount Sinai when God made his covenant with the Israelites, reminds us that God always works towards having a permanent, intimate relationship with mankind. The ram caught by his horn in the story of Isaac reminds us that God is merciful, He provided a ram to die in Isaac's place and a savior to die for the sins of the world. So that's from my handy-dandy book that I go to all the time. Um, I actually, my husband and I inherited a whole lot of books from a friend of ours, Lonnie and Howard, and they gave us a lot of these fantastic books. Um, ironically, these people are not Messianic either. Uh, they're actually Lutheran affiliated. So you never know, uh, where you're going to get information from. But this book is called The Jewish Way, Living the Holidays by Rabbi Irving Greenberg. And I mean, he's definitely not Messianic, um, as is obvious with a lot of the writings. It was interesting though, because I'm reading the portion of talking about the high holy days and you know, what's not mentioned at all throughout the entire thing. Yom Teruah, they talk about Rosh Hashanah, but they don't talk about Yom Teruah, which is actually in the Torah. Rosh Hashanah is not in the Torah. Yom Teruah is, and yet they do not mention it, which I find very interesting. I think a portion of it could be because it's the only feast of the Lord in the Bible that isn't really explained. You know, Adonai doesn't actually give you reasons as to why you're to celebrate it, which in and of itself is rather interesting. So I'm going to read to you different uh, excerpts from it, and hopefully it'll make a little bit more sense. So from the combined themes of death and of judgment comes the central image underlying the days of awe, the trial. Jews envision a trial in which the individual stands before the one who knows all. One's life is placed on the balance scales. A thorough assessment is made. Is my life contributing to the balance of life? Or does the net effect of my actions tilt the scale toward death my life is being weighed i am on trial for my life who shall live and who shall die this image jolts each person into a heightened awareness of the fragility of life this question poses the deeper issue if life ended right now would it have been worth worthwhile is one aware and grateful for the miracle of daily existence the trial image captures a sense of one's life being in someone else's hands. The shofar of Rosh Hashanah, which I would argue is actually Yom Teruah, proclaims that the judge before whom there is no hiding is now sitting on the bench. Sharpened self-awareness, candid self-judgment, and guilt are activated by the possibility that a death sentence may be handed down. Like standing before a firing squad, a trial for life wonderfully concentrates the mind. Then, the High Holy Days move to meet the third challenge of mortality, to harness death into a force for life. On Yom Kippur, Jews enact death by denying themselves the normal human pleasures. It is not a morbid experience, however, because this encounter with death is in the service of life. The true goal is a new appreciation of life. To know how fragile the shell of life is, is to learn to handle it with true grace grace and delicacy. Only one who realizes the vulnerability of loved ones can treasure every moment with them. The encounter with death turns the individual toward life. Death can only be opposed by life, just as death in life can only be opposed by growing in life. Instead of standing there, letting death constantly invade life, Judaism strikes back by raiding the realm of death and turning this encounter into a spur to life. So, you know, I've heard this scenario before as well, even in the Messianic or Christian community where You know, when you go, before you you get to go to heaven or hell, you, you know, you read about the book of life and you want your name to be in it. And, you know, Adonai is the judge. And the beauty here that the, unfortunately, the Jewish people are missing is Messiah. Yeshua comes on your behalf and say, I've already paid this price for this person. Your scales or your slate has been wiped clean. They are my child and they have been forgiven. All right, moving on. The rabbis taught that from time to time, people must stop and assess their deeds and their spiritual condition and judge whether the balance sheet of the soul is showing a profit or deficit. The classic Jewish term, Cheshbon Hanefesh. I probably butchered that, I apologize. A reckoning with oneself literally means accounting for the soul. Such moments are a time for penetrating questions and self-criticism. They pave the way for personal renewal. Making a, a Cheshbon Henefesh is appropriate all year round, but just as a month before the summer is a time when Americans go on crash diets, fearing how their bodies will look on the beach, so Elul, the month before Rosh Hashanah, or Yom Teruah, became the time when Jews went on crash spiritual regimens, fearing how their souls would look when they stood naked before God. And I think that's really important, right? Like, you really could do this any time of the year. You really don't have to wait for this particular time of year. But if you haven't throughout the rest of the year, now's the time. Now's the time to do a lot of introspection and think about how you have treated others, how you have loved Adonai, how much time you've spent with him, how much you've learned of him, because the closer you are with Adonai, the better you are as a human being, the better you are as a human being the better you are to your fellow man. Psalms are recited this month, most notably Psalm 27, which if you haven't read it, is a really great Psalm. I read it in preparation for this and I was like, wow, I wish I had time to read this on my podcast. It refers to God's protection in days of trouble. Letters written during this period include the wish that people be written into and confirmed in the book of life, which I already discussed. This led to the custom of sending New Year's cards prayer, giving charity, and acts of repentance are also increased in lull, which, you know, I think should be, once again, a yearly thing, not just a monthly thing. Among other customs created to express the urgency of the season are fasting part of the day on the eve of Rosh Hashanah, once again, I would argue Yom Teruah, and the spending of the day in learning or asking forgiveness from people one has wronged. Always a really great practice, I would also encourage you not to wait a full year before asking for forgiveness if you've hurt somebody (laughs) and you know that you have and that you've wronged somebody. Taking a haircut and dressing in new clothes are part of the preparation for Rosh Hashanah. As for other holidays, in spite of the awe of the moment, the joy of the holiday is not stilled. On the contrary, joy expresses confidence in God's forgiveness and love. Despite the fear and trembling, the trial is before a merciful judge. If joy were suppressed, it would represent a failure to appreciate God's nature. This counterpoint of joy wells up even on Yom Kippur when the anxiety of the trial reaches its peak. Which, you know, in a later podcast I will be talking about. In the Torah, Rosh Hashanah itself is not openly identified as the New Year Day. It took oral law and rabbinic literature to create that. Which is why I wanted to express that. It's not biblical. Okay, so the sound of the shofar, I wanted to kind of explain that for those who maybe don't have a congregation to go to, and maybe they have a shofar, but they have no idea how they're supposed to blow it. I wanted to kind of give you a little breakdown on it. The two primary sounds of the shofar capture the two major themes of, I'm going to change it to Yam Teruah. The first, called Takiyah, is a long straight blast, nine beats long a grand sound that was used for proclamation and coronation. The second sound is called terua, three broken or wavering sounds. Two traditions of the teruah sound developed in different Jewish communities. One version held that teruah was a moaning sound expressed in three broken sounds, each three beats long. They called this shavarim, which means broken. The other version held that it was a sound of outcry, three times three or nine staccato, almost bleeding sounds. They named this terua, which may, means alarm sound. This sound in either version is a cry for mercy, invoking Isaac's sacrifice or alarm at the coming trial, or both. The tradition was to blow one straight blast one broken blast, and again, one straight sound in sets of three together. The sounds are drawn out long enough to make an impression, say three to six seconds for a and three seconds for a teruah. After the destruction, Jews came together from communities with different versions of the terua To avoid splintering and dissension, Rabbi Abahu of Caesarea ruled that a set of each sound version be blown and for good measure, a third set incorporating both broken sounds together also be sounded. This became the practice down to today. Thus, the shofar sounds also point to the unity and pluralism of the Jewish people. Takiyah is a sound of joy, hope, and trust in future redemption. If you haven't been to a service, a Yom Turo service, I would highly encourage you to do so. We do that at our congregation, and I absolutely love that part, you know, where they sound out, you know, Takiyah! Torua and it's just, it's beautiful just listening to the sound of the shofar. There are three main themes of Yam Teruah. Malchuyot, God is king, ruler. Zikronot, God remembers in merciful judgment. And Shofarot, the shofar evokes revelation and redemption. Each section consists primarily of 10 biblical proof texts. Three from Torah, three from Prophets, three from the later writings, and a tenth verse from the Torah summarizing the theme. Each section concludes with the sounding of the shofar to confirm the theme. The sounds are takiyah, shavarim, teruah, takiyah, takiyah, shavarim, takiyah, takiyah, teruah, takiyah. I know that sounds really weird, but if you are familiar with it, you'll hopefully understand what in the world I was talking about. Now, there is an interesting tradition, which we do not promote necessarily in our congregation, but I know that there are some in our congregation who do do this. It's uh, called Tashlik, which is um, where people go to rivers, oceans, or lakes, bodies of living water, and symbolically cast their sins into the waters. Tashlik expresses the feelings of being freed from the burden of past sins by repentance and God's forgiveness. The whole ritual is a symbol The miracle of repentance and a pleasing reminder not to hold people responsible for past errors once they have turned from them. So I think it's kind of like a visual reminder. Once again, I don't think, no, I know, I've never actually done that particular tradition because I have Yeshua. I don't need that kind of reminder. But for some, it's comforting. And, you know, to each their own, if they're convicted to do it, then God bless them. But that's not necessarily biblical. Okay, the relationship of death and renewal. The intense focus on death during the holiday period runs the risk of turning morbid. Since encounter with death evokes guilt, there is a risk that the High Holy Days will turn into a guilt trip. However, the goal of the Days of Awe is not merely repentance, but renewal. It is a move toward an examined life, not masochistic self-flagellation. Those are some big words. The power of sin and of bad patterns, is that it convinces people that change is impossible. People despair in their ability to change and give up the capacity to grow or renew. The promise of repentance and the model of God challenge this hopelessness. There is a process of rebirth, but it needs attention, effort, and help. The first step is to become conscious of one's life, to overcome the routines that block the capacity to evaluate, correct, and change. Setting aside time in a lull, or during the high holy days, is the beginning of liberation. It is a time for families to sit down together, for single individuals and for husbands and wives alike to do an inventory and accounting of the year that has passed in their lives. It is a time to express dissatisfaction and to weigh or gather the resources for change. If there's been no time for introspection all year, then it must be found in this period. Here's where the consciousness of death plays a vital role. The shock of death reminds us that time is short, too short to waste too short to let pride and despair trap one in a life pattern with little in it to savor or respect. The very awareness of mortality suddenly puts life into bold relief. No aspect of life can be taken for granted. No feature of one's personal way is either eternal or absolutely necessary. Thus, one can review, fine-tune, or alter with a new consciousness or, alter- or of alternatives. The most dramatic expression of this concept is on Yom Kippur, day when every possible occupation or distraction is suspended. Even the life process of eating and sexuality are stopped. It is as if all of life is stopped and can now be chosen anew. I think that was all I had to read, which is quite a bit, I know, from this particular uh, book. I thought it was very enlightening. I don't agree with the majority of what this book has to say, but I thought it was very interesting to see the Jewish perspective when it comes to the feast. And I did want to read to you a little bit from the Torah portion this uh, past week because I think it, it does actually play pretty well into what's going on with the whole High Holy Days coming up. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 and 16 and verses 19 and 20. See, I've set before you today life and good and death and evil. What I am commanding you today is to love Adonai your God to walk in his ways and to keep his mitzvah, statutes and ordinances. Then you'll live and multiply, and Adonai your God will bless you in the land you are going in to possess. I call the heavens and the earth to witness about you today, that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. Therefore choose life so that you and your descendants may live, by loving Adonai your God, listening to his voice, and clinging to him. For he is your life and the length of your days that you may dwell in the land that Adonai swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. Now, for those of you who are not aware, I read from the tree of life version of the Bible. I just happen to really be able to relate really well to it. It doesn't have too many uh, crazy words that I'm like, what in the world does this mean? Because a lot of times when you're studying the word, it's good to have a a Bible that does that. But other times it's like, I really just want to sink my teeth into this and I don't want to have to have a good coordinates right next to me to look up every other word. I thoroughly appreciate tree of life to be able to dumb it down enough for me to understand. Now the next one I'm going to redo is also the Brit Hadashah which is Romans 10 8 through 10. It's a portion of it and I think that it really just succinctly breaks it down with what unfortunately our Jewish brothers and sisters are missing which as most of us know is Yeshua HaMashiach. You know, Jesus our Messiah. So Romans 10, chapter, verses 8 to 10, it says, But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we are proclaiming. For if you confess, confess with your mouth that Yeshua is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart it is believed for righteousness, and with the mouth it is confessed for salvation. I would actually encourage you to read all of chapter 10 and even chapter 11, because it kind of leaves you on a cliffhanger. Um, Almost like, man, are you saying that Israel is uh, not, you know, God is not happy with the Israelite people? It's like, you know, or that God's rejected them. Chapter 11 addresses that as well. And I think it's just important for us to take the word of God in context and not out of context. So we don't just want to read one chapter and be like, oh, well, that was really, really well. And that's what it meant because we need to also remember back in the day, there were no chapters, there were no verses. It was all just one book or one letter. So Romans was all just one letter. There wasn't like, Paul's like, oh, verse one. Hello, brethren. No, it wasn't like that at all. So I think it's good for us to take that into consideration when we're reading the word, whether it be the Old Testament or the New Testament, and I hope that I gave you some insight of, of what to do in preparation. Basically, you're preparing your heart. You're preparing your lives and choosing to take a good hard look at what you're doing with your life and who you're doing your life with. And if you're surrounding yourself with the right people and if you need to ask for forgiveness for wrong wrongdoings against someone, if you haven't already done that, I do try to make a point. I think it's a lot healthier if you don't wait a full year before you ask for forgiveness for somebody. If if you know that you've wronged somebody, you go to them as soon as you know that you have, or as soon as as possible, right? Because sometimes you don't necessarily see that person on a daily basis. But I think it's really important for us to recognize that Yeshua is our sacrifice. He is our living hope. And that during this time, it's not only time of introspection, but also of rejoicing and of thankfulness and of gratefulness of what Yeshua did on that cross for us, that he sacrificed his life so that we may live and be able to live more abundantly and live with him even after death. That there isn't just nothing when we die that we get to go and glorify and be with him and worship him for the rest of our lives. Now, as I do every single week. On the podcast, I will read to you the ironic benediction. I'm gonna go ahead and try and sing it, but I feel like there's something in my throat right now. But, anyways, I'm gonna go ahead and, and read it. You can find it in Numbers chapter six, verses twenty four and twenty-six. <laughs> Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Yeshua In the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. Amen. May you have a blessed week. We're starting on renovations this week on our house. So keep us in your prayers and hopefully you will tune in again next week. Shavua Tov please feel free to message me at MessyMessianicMama.com or you can email me at ELMMM3 at ProtonMail.com. That's E is in Echo, L is in Lemur, M as in Mike, M is an Mike, M, Mike, M Mike, the number three at ProtonMail.com. You can also leave me a one-minute voicemail message on Anchor.FM slash Erica LaCasse, and it should have a button right there to say, leave a voice message. Remember to keep it short and sweet if you have any questions or you just want to leave a nice little comment. I would love to hear from you.